to The Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes-Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView and your host today, Wednesday, July 14th, 2021. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. If you'd like to subscribe to our free monthly newsletter, please visit our website, and if you can, support us on Patreon and Substack. You'll also find past podcasts on our website, econview.com, and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all of the usual places. My guest today is Robert Madsen, speaking to us from the heart of the dragon, Menlo Park, California. Although he sits in Silicon Valley, Robert is in a way the opposite of a technologist. He thinks about the big economic issues, and he thinks about them both globally and historically. He's an old friend and now a colleague at Hale Strategic, where he serves as senior economist. His views have deeply influenced my own thinking over the past. Is it now almost 20 years, Robert, that we've known each other? Yep. Well, welcome to the Hale Report. And let me begin by giving our listeners who don't know you as well a little bit more about your background so they know how you know what you know. Of special importance is the fact that you worked in both academia, and the private sector. I think that's really critical. From 2004 to 2015, Dr. Madsen was a senior fellow at MIT's Center for International Studies. And before that, he was a fellow at Stanford University's Asia Pacific Research Center. He studied East Asian languages and civilizations at Harvard, then did a master's degree and doctorate in international relations as a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, followed by a law degree at Stanford. He regularly speaks at Stanford Law School's Director's College and lectures on Chinese and Asian law and business. He is fluent in both Chinese and Japanese. As I said, he's now Senior Economist at Hale Strategic, halestrategic.com, where you can find out more about his work. Some of the groups he's worked with previously, the Ford Foundation, Unison Capital, Robert M. Bass, Soros Private Funds, and the Economist Intelligence Unit, on topics ranging from energy to epidemiology, but always from the vantage point of global macroeconomics and geopolitics. I think that this is the briefest possible introduction I can make given his extraordinary background. Robert, I'm so happy to have you as my guest on Hale Report. I've been looking forward to this. If you've listened to my past podcast, you know that I always begin with the same question. How did you first become interested in the fields that you have pursued throughout your career, Asia, economics, and geopolitics? What was the spark? Well, um, Asia became an interest because I spent some time there and uh, was surprised to realize how much I enjoyed Japan. And so I uh, kept studying it. And then when I was an undergraduate, I thought if Japanese is fun, Chinese is probably fun too. So then I started doing Chinese, and uh, the macroeconomic, or actually the geopolitics came because I frankly wanted to find excuses to spend more time in Asia, um, learning languages and uh, meeting interesting people. So I had to make applications for scholarships and grants, and uh, it was easier to sell that as trying to understand the international relations of East Asia. So that was uh, driven by my love for Asian cultures and my desire to avoid gainful employment and have more fun. A worthy goal. <laughs> <laughs> then the economics came because uh, when I left McKinsey and Company, some people started asking me to do some work on Asia, Japan, China, some other places. And then I started working with the Economist Intelligence Unit and uh, realized, hey, this is really fun. And the beauty of economics, I think, is that it's the summation of all people's well-being. So if you want to understand the fate of people, you have to understand the fate of economies. And if you want to solve problems for people, it has to be informed by both geopolitics and economics. Well, uh, that is a wonderful uh, definition of economics. I, I really love that. There's so many topics I'd like to discuss with you, but I thought maybe we could start with the U.S., and what you feel about the response to the pandemic here and what you think about the Biden administration's first 176, I think, days it is today, and in particular, economic policy. Uh, okay. Do you want to take any of those in a particular order? Nope. It's completely nope. how you'd like to approach it. Uh, 
All right. The situation in the United States in the pandemic. The United States wasted a year, wasted 500,000 human lives. So that was a disaster. Um, the combination of the uh, vaccines that were developed in part because of Trump administration policy gave us a chance to rectify a lot of that, or at least to stem the bleeding, literally. Unfortunately, the politicization of the process has meant that, Republic, well, more than Republican Trumpist uh, states are highly vulnerable. So we really have only escaped half of the pandemic. The other half we seem to be welcoming with open arms. And the result is going to be that uh, the Federal Reserve, which has wanted to tighten monetary policy, begin the long process of doing that, is going to have a hard time doing that because a third of the country is going to be in crisis for the next year, year and a half, two years. So um, I think it's tragic that we're going to suffer 100,000 or 200,000 more deaths because of politics. Um, I also think in a more kind of objective fashion that this is another reason why the Fed is going to have a hard time tightening policy in the near term. Okay, so you're so lower for longer is your... Well, yeah. I mean, obviously there's a a spike in inflation here, and that's due to a surge in demand. Number one, when you lock the country down for a year, of course there's going to be a surge of demand. People are going to want to buy stuff. Um, They're also going to want to escape their homes, so they want to travel. And that means there's a lot more pressure um, in the travel-related industries. Meanwhile, because global shipping slowed down so much for a year, there are backlogs of container ships at a lot of the world's big ports. And that means the supply of goods and well, goods and then ultimately services in the United States and elsewhere is constrained. So extra demand, less supply, inflation. Um, the big question is whether that's a long-term trend or a short-term trend. And the factors I've just mentioned also are short-term factors. So I don't think that's enough to lead one to conclude that um, well, inflation is going to be a problem over the medium term, let alone the long term. Right. And I think we'll come back to that a little bit more too. Um, but speaking of travel, um, we're coming up to the Tokyo Olympics and we've been talking about Japan, a place we both love. We're coming up to the Tokyo Olympics, uh, which will be conducted under a state of emergency as a long-term, uh, long-time observer of Japan. How do you rate Prime Minister Suga's response to the economic fallout of the pandemic? And how do you see Japan's recovery coming about? Well, um, I think Japanese policy has been pretty bad, meaning that uh, they have managed to escape uh, a big problem with the pandemic so far, but they haven't had the vaccinations done. And as a result, the country is vulnerable. Uh, the Tokyo Olympics were a way to showcase Japan's recovery from its long malaise. So politically, it's important. And yet, because the Japanese government has not prepared for this, the impact of the Olympics is going to be significantly lessened, both in terms of projecting a strong Japanese image abroad, and also in terms of the economic benefit to um, Japan. The other thing that I think is really important is that the IOC is not innocent here either, and they're going to pay a price um, too. Obviously, the Japanese people are not happy about having the Olympics uh, now. And mm-hmm. um, essentially, the IOC and the Japanese government are saying that, well, when it comes to the Olympics, popular opinion and democracy don't matter. That's not a good look. And then the r- silly restrictions that are being imposed, you know, breastfeeding mothers who are athletes competing are not able to take their babies. I mean, that is such an inhuman and stupid policy. So I think that the Olympics are going to suffer. Their reputation is going to be tarnished significantly. Um, Japanese want to get it done, and uh, they'll get it done. But I think the Japanese will have less interest in the um, in the Olympics going forward. I think other countries are probably getting a little bit concerned about the massive costs and limited gains. So, uh, yeah, Suga will get what he wants. Um, There won't be a huge benefit for the economy, and Japan's going to remain dependent on global growth, which is a little more difficult when China's economy is decelerating. Right, and uh, it will be interesting to see how the 2022 Olympics in Beijing 
also roll out and what oh, kind of boy. issues. I think that that's going to be a hornet's nest myself. Well, uh, Xinjiang, right? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, we're seeing really nasty policies and oppression and then there's of, of people in various parts of China. Hong Kong was taken over recently in um, contradiction with international law and China's uh, treaty obligations. The United States and Britain were supposed to um, were supposed to guarantee Hong Kong's uh, autonomy for a certain period of time. They both blew it. So I think uh, the world's looking at China as a bigger threat with fewer constraints. They're doing things in Xinjiang and elsewhere that are pretty appalling. And uh, so countries are going to have to decide, are we going to go through with the Olympics in Beijing or are we going to protest and stay out? Um, I think the athletes are going to suffer a lot either way. And um, they're very important decisions governments have to make. You know, it just seems to me in this post-pandemic world and with all of the things that we just can't have nice things anymore <laughs> is what it feels like. <laughs> Eric, why didn't you just do as you were told? <laughs> oh, I, I did order that book, by the way. <laughs> I did. I haven't read it, but I'm going to read that book. Thank you for mentioning um, that to me. Uh, I will tell you which chapters are the best to start with. Okay. I will, I will do that. So we'll, now that we're kind of veering offline a little bit, as I knew we would, (laughs) do you think that Japan will take on a new geostrategic role given recent concerns about Taiwan's security? What's changing in Japan? Will Abe become prime minister again in order to, you know, affect the constitutional changes that would make a remilitarization of Japan's defense force possible. Do you see anything in this direction? Um, Taiwan appeared, I think, in a recent statement for the first time. And I'm, how do you read those tea leaves? Well, um, I, I think, I think the key is that uh, Japan's not in a very strong position. Um, the way you pose the question is to suggest that uh, Japan is a potential um, uh, actor, could become a more a progressively more important actor mm-hmm. on behalf of Taiwan. I tend to see Japan as an extension of the security guarantees given to Hong Kong, Taiwan, South Korea from the United States. Mm-hmm. So when Hong Kong goes away and the pressure increases on Taiwan, I think that that makes Japan's geopolitical situation weaker. I see that as more of a threat to Japan than Japan as a threat to China. So, yes, Japan's going to say a lot of things and be, you know, say that this is bad and everybody should stand by Taiwan and all the rest of it. As push comes to shove, if uh, Taiwan is under pressure from China, my bet is that Japan's going to stop challenging China verbally and start trying to figure out how to arrange a a settlement between the United States and China at Taiwan's expense. So I don't think it's likely that Japan is going to take on a burden of protecting Taiwan that the United States is hesitant to take on itself. Japan is still an extension of American power. Okay. And I, I, that actually makes sense to me. And, but it, it feels to me as if you're pessimistic about Taiwan's long-term prospects or independence. Uh, I guess, I mean, I haven't thought about it in those terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I am. I mean, Taiwan is very, very important to the interests of the West. Um, and as uh, uh, indication of American and European commitment to democracy. So the United States and Europe and other places have a strong incentive to get this right and to make sure that Taiwan's future is not determined coercively. On the other hand, Hong Kong shows us that you can't really depend on the United States and Europe. Right. That if presented by a fait accompli by China, they're just going to wring their hands and step back and say, well, let's make sure everything is okay in the, when the Olympics occur mm-hmm. in two years. So, you know, really, I think this comes down to the United States. Will the United States maintain its leadership of a block of countries that are willing to challenge China over Taiwan? That's the question. 
If the United States uh, is going to do that, then maybe Japan, under the umbrella of American power, will contribute more to Taiwan's defense. But I think that's the question. And the, the really important matter here is, again, whether the United States is dependable. When the United States made its commitments to Taiwan, I mean, the first commitment there during the um, July 1950, during the Korean War, limited commitment, but American troops were there. And then the, um, the commitment kind of grew out of that. But it's been there for 70 years. The commitment to South Korea, 70 years. The commitment to Hong Kong, basically as long. And mm -hmm. what we've seen with the wave of populism that swept over the world is that um, democracies can't really make long-term commitments because you can vote the next jokers in and then they can tear up all the previous arrangements. So um, Biden, I don't think, is likely to do that. But the Republicans, you know, I, I hesitate to use the word Republican like that because there are two Republican parties, one of them running for the exits and the other is basically an extension of Donald Trump's ego. And there, I don't think that uh, anyone can rule out the return to power of either Trumpians or a similar um, kind of nihilistic right-wing movement led by somebody who's maybe younger and smiles better. But mm -hmm. I don't think that um, countries that have been long-term allies of the United States are entirely confident that the United States is going to be around to protect them. So if the U.S. has lost this quality of dependability, the same time China has suffered an incredible fall in terms of its popularity, according to every poll and just about every other country. Um, not, not only because of the pandemic, um, I believe, but for other reasons, um, its soft power has been declining. But for its economy, in terms of first in, first out, is the Chinese economy, which is now slowing, a bellwether for the rest of us. Um, they have, um, as you know, on Friday, they recently took measures to ease credit and the reserve requirements for Chinese banks by a, a large number, 50 basis points. That, that was surprising to most. So even though exports have gone up, Chinese consumers are also remaining very cautious. Um, do you th so do you think China is facing simultaneous political, geopolitical headwinds, economic headwinds, and could the slowdown there be less gradual than most people think? Let's move back to this question of hard power and soft power. Yes, uh, definitely true that um, um, China has lost soft power over Hong Kong, over Xinjiang, and a few other things. That's absolutely true. The, the kind of bullying in the South China Sea, that's certainly true. But the United States has lost a ton of soft power, too. Um, the United States has betrayed Hong Kong. The United States has tolerated, you know, the extreme misconduct in Xinjiang. The United States avoided joining TPP, which would have helped cement the American relationships with the uh, other kind of relatively liberal countries in East Asia. So the United States soft power is weak, too. What matters then? What matters is hard power. And it's not which is the more powerful country generally, it's which is the more powerful country in East and Southeast Asia. Can the United States really check China's burgeoning naval power in all those places at the same time and over a long period of time? I think that's, you know, generally wrong. You can look at all kinds of episodes in history. And the truth is that if it's a distant conflict, it is really hard to maintain a commitment to a place like that for a long time. Look at Afghanistan. The United States is withdrawing. The Taliban is going to take power. And we might be back there in 10 years as a result. So um, I think, you know, if you look at China's growing economic and military power and you look at the United States far away, you know, to, to paraphrase what uh, the Mexican president said about God, you remember that uh, his lament that um, God is so far away and alas, the United States is so close. Um, it's sort of like that for the countries of East Asia. The United States is so far away, and China is so close. So 
you know, there's a very strong practical incentive for most of those countries to seek a rapprochement with China, even because they don't think that the United States hard power is enough to protect them. Now, you asked a different question, which is about the loss of soft power uh, for China um, and what uh, that means um, with regard to the economics. Um, yeah, China, I mean, we know that we have known for a very long time that the one-child policy is going to cause a really um, sharp slowdown in China's growth. Well, not really sharp, but prolonged, chronic. And that's true. We see the uh, the fact that the population is shrinking, um, the burden of old people in the economy is increasing, the labor force is shrinking. That's a recipe for a sharply decelerating economy. The problem that that poses for China is that, I mean, China has no legitimacy other than economics. It was an old legitimacy that was destroyed by the Revolutionary War. Marxism slash communism was imposed uh, as a substitute for that. But then, of course, Deng Xiaoping in 1978 and his successors have thrown away communism. So you have a dictatorial power in a capitalist system. Um, their only claim to popular legitimacy is rising uh, living standards. Now the, living, the speed with which living standards rise is falling. So what does China do to kind of reinforce the legitimacy of the system? They find an alternative legitimacy. And that alternative legitimacy has always been nationalism and uh, resentment of foreign countries. So, you know, in 2014, um, Xi Jinping um, adopted a national security policy strategy that they said that quite clearly. They wanted to control the internet. They wanted to have greater influence over foreign countries operating in China. And they wanted to emphasize nationalism. They didn't say it, but the reason for that was they wanted nationalism to replace some of the uh, economic prestige that China was going to lose as the economy decelerated. So what that means from my point of view is that uh, for the Chinese government to increase the stability of its system at a difficult time, the card they're going to play is a nationalist card. Mm -hmm. So economic weakness drives more aggression towards foreigners, not the other way around. So we should really wish for um, a China that is economically strong and sound and growing for uh, the sure greater common interest. Okay. Um, oh, is, that you know, what, is that what you're saying? It's a trade-off yes. between the two. Well, it is in terms of legitimacy, but I'm not sure mm -hmm. that it goes the other way. Um, mm -hmm. If uh, China's economy does better, that doesn't necessarily mean China's going to be nicer to other countries or nicer to its own citizens. It may be, and I think you can make a strong argument for the idea that uh, Xi Jinping and his colleagues are dictators. They're, they're, they're authoritarians. And so I think that their strategy, and this goes back to a certain extent all the way to Deng Xiaoping, um, is to use the economics to strengthen the state. So if, this, if the country becomes more, more uh, prosperous and more influential in an economic sense, what that means is that they will harness that as a way to build military power more quickly um, and again, to assert a greater role internationally. So on the one hand, the slowing economy means they have to emphasize nationalism more. On the other hand, if the economy does better, um, I think that, that it may make them a little bit less prickly in the short term, but the goal is still to be the dominant power in East Asia and ultimately in the world. So I think, um, it, it, I guess the question is the degree of the nationalism and how acute it is and how it drives relations with other countries. It's clear to me from the behavior of the last few years that uh, the Chinese government in Beijing thinks they're in a position to take over Hong Kong, to ignore international concerns about Xinjiang and the Uyghurs, and basically to um, you know, suppress any kind of dissentience within China that they find problematic. Um, so I think I think that's a longer term pattern. And again, it's enhanced by the fact that the United States is not as credible a guarantor of the existing uh, constellation of powers in East Asia as it was mm -hmm. even five, six years ago. So then we have to talk about the U.S. policy response to this. And um, I think, you know, Bill Overholt as well. And yeah. a couple of days ago, he had uh, an opinion piece in the in the Hill and what he said is he does not believe the current 
um, uh, administration has a strong enough China bench um, at the highest levels that a lot of the people um, have experience in Southeast Asia or in Japan, but there's no one who's particularly strong in China. So uh, what do you think, what would you advise President Biden to be doing in terms of China policy based on the landscape that you've described? Okay, first, I, I think we have to start by saying Biden might not be able to fix this. Biden's position in the United States is not that strong. He can't get stuff through Congress. There's a real threat that uh, the Trump kind of populace um, will do well in the 2002 election. And um, I'm sorry, 2022 election. And um, that uh, um, uh, Biden is then crippled and can't do anything at all. So Again, if I'm a country in East Asia and I'm looking at this, I'm saying, look, Biden's got his heart in the right place. He wants to do the right thing in East Asia, but he's not that strong and he might not, he might be weaker in two years and he might be gone in four. So you can't bet on a single guy. Um, I think Biden has to, has to um, uh, reinforce his own situation, his own power in the United States before he can do much in East Asia. Um, you know, he's fighting over voting rights. If he, if he loses the voting rights bill, then he's going to lose control of Congress um, in, you know, in the midterms, and then he can't do a right. damn thing. So um, I think that Biden's got to get his act together domestically, start getting some stuff done quickly, or else he's, he's not a credible um, international actor. Mm. And we certainly have issues here. Um, that have to be dealt with. Um, I was on a panel yesterday with a group in London and we were talking about the U.S. situation. I said, well, here in Chicago, um, this past weekend, for over the three days, we had three deaths from COVID. But we had 13 gunshot deaths and 33 people who were critically wounded. We have a lot of issues in the violence and so forth that begets more violence. This is... Uh, I, I agree with you. I think we have to tend our own garden here for a while. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, the Roberts Court could go down in history as the one that destroyed American democracy. The mm, Roberts how Court, so? Well, one of, one of the important um, citizens, the Citizens United decision, saying mm -hmm. that um, uh, you can't restrict in any meaningful way the flow of money into politics. It, well, if you can't restrict the flow of money into politics, then both the Democrats and the Republicans end up basically sucking at the same tit. Um, right. Meaning they've got to go to rich people, therefore they reflect rich people's interests. And that does a couple of things. One, um, it, uh, it means the rich people dominate the United States government. And two, it means that poor people, you can read that as poor minorities or poor whites, do poorly. And when poor people do poorly, as we know from all the, the, the uh, instability in the last few years, they go to the streets. And so mm -hmm. um, that's a major issue. The second thing is, of course, the Roberts Court uh, overturned the tradition of um, allowing limited uh, gun control because, of course, the Constitution says that the gun rights belong to state militias, National Guards. Well, they took out the militia requirement. So the Roberts Court has basically said anybody can have a gun that wants and, you know, right. the argument then becomes on, you know, tactical nuclear weapons. It's ridiculous. Um, and then the third thing is the decision that uh, the Voting Rights Act no longer applies. The, the Supreme Court um, is not supposed to substitute its judgment for Congress. Congress passed laws saying the federal government would oversee what state governments do um, to ensure that elections are fair. And the Roberts Court has taken two uh, positions that gut sections of that bill and remove the federal government from controlling um, or ensuring the, the vitality of American elections. So um, in several different ways, making the political system uh, completely pay for play, uh, increasing the availability of guns and saying that states can discriminate against minorities if they want to in their voting arrangements. All of those things are, are um, disasters that, uh, you know, if, if history goes a certain way, future historians are going to look back and blame the Roberts Court. With more particular regard to what we're talking about, these things make it much more difficult for Biden to kind of solidify his position. And then, I mean, 
we are so far from the kind of consensus that existed after World War II when the United States mm-hmm. really rebuilt the world. Right. There was consensus between Democrats and Republicans. So right now we're in a situation where, you know, half the country is is committed to throwing away our alliances abroad. Um, and there's no no chance of creating a new world order because of the divisions in the U.S. polity. Mm. So you're talking about uh, judicial legitimacy, but also here in the United States, we have the same issue of eco- economic legitimacy for our leaders to continue in their in their positions. Uh, the two biggest topics, I think, in economics today, one, it's the accumulation of debt that has just been, uh, it's historic in nature. What's going to happen? It's been necessary, people say, and it doesn't matter because of modern monetary theory to get out of the current emergency. And then also, is is, is that something that's going to come back to hurt us? And is the possibility of inflation derailing everything? You mentioned earlier that you think that it's it's temporary. And in fact, um, Robert, I know you and I have talked about disinflation and a world of demand of, uh, you, you see the exact opposite, demand diminishing over time. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that worldview, not one sure. where inflation ever will become a, a persistent issue. So the question is, um, how big of a threat is inflation to the United States right now? And obviously, most economists think that we're headed into an inflationary period. And with interest rates rising, it could be a stagflationary period, like the 1970s. I'm skeptical of that. Now, like with all economic judgment, you always have to leave a margin for error. But I am skeptical about it. I think... Part of the problem is that people are used, economists are used to thinking about price levels in a particular way. Um, the, you know, from 1950 to 2005, for a variety of reasons, the world had a lot of demand, relatively little supply. And so inflation was always the problem. Too much demand, too little supply, prices are going to rise, and that's the world that uh, we lived in. People in the economist profession um, came to view that as kind of an unchanging reality. That was the status quo. The idea was central banks have gotten so good at managing inflation that, uh, um, that at keeping economies growing that managing inflation is easy to do. The problem with that is that the period from 1950 to 2005 may have been an anomaly. For most of human history, economies have barely grown at all, and the problem is deflation, not inflation. So what if we're returning to normal circumstances and the last 50, 75 years have been abnormal? The question then arises, who understands deflationary economics? And there are a handful of people, um, Larry Summers, Paul Krugman, and then the few of us who've been condemned to studying Japan during its long malaise. Because what is a 20-year period of flat growth and, you know, bad economic performance, if not a a depression? Japan has been in a depression for a long time. So I think there are a few people who um, have seen what deflation or disinflationary uh, conditions are like. The problem is that if everyone thinks that we're in an inflationary scenario, but we're really in a deflationary scenario, then they're going to get their uh, judgments wrong. And, sh- and expectations wrong. Well, yeah. <laughs> right. But in the short term, mm-hmm. it's like you look at uh, the r- rise of prices and, and uh, for various things in the United States and other economies, it looks like we're headed into this horrible inflationary period. Um, but those factors, as I look at them, are short-term factors. There's a surge in um, uh, spending that comes at the end of a pandemic lockdown. There are interruptions to supply chains because uh, container ships are stuck in various ports around the world. There are a variety of things which are short-term in nature. So I think the short-term outlook, yeah, I mean, I'm going to sound like a genius saying that I think inflation is going to be high in the next few months, given that it's already high and will be for the next few months. But the question is really what happens after that? And a lot of people think it's going to continue to be a period of inflation. I'm not sure of that. For the last I don't think markets think that. 
Well, yeah, I don't think markets are saying that. I think, I think they're more sanguine. They are sanguine. Um, mm-hmm. Now, they have the advantage that if they decide they're wrong, they can jump out of their positions lightning fast and leave the poor households um, holding the, 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 the losses, as always happens with these things. So I don't think, that, yeah, the market price levels are telling you that inflation's going to come back. Um, but I can see reasons why it won't. One is the biggest deflationary or disinflationary force in the last 30 or 40 years has been the addition of Chinese labor to the global workforce. That um, pool of excess cap, uh, labor has basically been absorbed. But there are other pools out there. There's a lot of labor in India that, given the right policies, could be added to the global labor force, and we'd have downward pressure over the longer term. Another factor is, of course, um, technology, because you know what is the purpose of technology and technological innovation for companies? It's to replace labor, because labor is two-thirds of the cost of anything the average company does. If you can replace workers, you bring that down to 50% or 40%, massive improvement in the bottom line. And, and so that's what's happening. Capital exactly. investment is going because of the labor shortages. Well, People just unwilling to But to But it work. goes the other way, too. Um, th- mm-hmm. This has been happening for 10 or 15 years. Uh, uh, you know, At least. Right, yeah. right. And, and it's accelerating, right? The uh, Increasingly, um, anything that's intellectual can be done by machines. Um, it's, you know, there are limits to where that is now, but as technologies get better, it's going to become more true. And so that's a massive downward pressure on labor. It means that the place where you need American workers isn't, I mean, there will always be demand for smart people in technology companies and other kind of sophisticated enterprises. But frankly, for middle-class people and blue-collar labor, um, a lot of that can be replaced by either technology directly or through the outsourcing of jobs over telecommunications networks. So if I'm looking at uh, wages as I think they're going to uh, trend over the next 10 or 15 years, I don't see any reason to believe wage pressure is going to be significant. In the short term, right now, our companies are trying to get staffed up to expand capacity to where it was before the pandemic, yes. But over the longer term, I think demand for labor relative to output is going to decline. And then you've got an increase in workers that are available in places like India. That strikes me as a situation in which um, the labor component of of uh, prices is going to be pretty weak. So I think that I think people are overly concerned about um, inflation in the longer term. And that means Do you see Go ahead. Oh, in the longer term. And that means, I'll, I'm sorry, I interrupted well, you. Okay. The, I, the issue is, okay, we have inflation right now, and it's significant inflation. Um, is, that, is the inflation rate going to be 5 or 6% in a year? Could be. Two years, less likely. Five years, much less likely. So what I'm saying is that in the short term, yes, inflation is already here. You can't deny it. Um, but the longer-term factors, I don't think, support an inflationary outlook. I think people are mm-hmm. overestimating uh, inflation. Instead of kind of a medium or longer-term rate of 3 or 4%, I think it's more likely to be one5 to 2.5%. So I think inflationary wow. concerns are uh, overwrought, um, which also means, uh, and I don't really like to say this, but pressure on interest rates is also going to be weaker than people think. Mm-hmm. The reason, well, that's good news for markets. <laughs> and for not sure. so good news for workers and not so good news right. for productivity. Because right. one thing that Japan shows us, and you can see this in the 1930s, well, there are two things. One is that um, when uh, economies are weak, um, rich people get richer because the money supply increases fast. And the money goes into the hands of people who already have assets. So one of the tragedies of the last 20, 30 years is that we've seen massive amount of liquidity created. It's all gone into assets. And so this uh, distribution of wealth in the United States is approaching third world levels. And that's a mistake. It's already passed uh, a lot of third world countries. So um, that's a big problem. And the other problem is that um, the driving force behind capitalism is interest rates. 
there has to be a cost to borrow. If there's no cost to borrow, then um, there's no force driving companies to get rid of bad operations. And, you know, the zombie companies in Japan in the 90s and 2000s, they never died. Why did they never die? Because the cost of capital was effectively zero, so they couldn't go bankrupt. The United States has been in that situation for several years, too, uh, in parts of Europe where interest rates are so low, there's no penalty for running a company really, really badly. And so those companies don't go away. The point being that when interest rates are close to zero, productivity in economy improvements in in, in uh in productive processes uh, deteriorates. And so um, what I'm suggesting is that inflation is likely to be weaker than people presently think, interest rates are lower, and that's not necessarily good. It means that corporate innovation, not talking about technology companies, but big companies that employ most of the people, is going to be more limited. And, uh, and so essentially... Um, the ability of the economy over the medium or longer term to grow is going to be uh, tamped down. So, uh, Robert, speaking of the Bank of Japan, uh, Japanese interest rates and all the things that, you know, began there, what, how do you see the changing role and mandates of central banks? You know, for the U.S., it's supposed to be price levels and also employment. But now the, the Fed is looking at other social goals, creating equality, for example, the recently the ECB said that they're going to have a formal goal of also advocating against climate change. So do you think that central banks should try to perform roles? Is this partly a failure of the fiscal aspect of what is going on in the economy or political? Why is all this being put on central banks? Do you think this is a useful exercise? Let's start with the assumption um, the assumption is that central banks uh, in Western economies that have statutory independence are statutorily independent and factually independent. And that's just nonsense. It's utterly nonsense. The truth is that you can pass a law that gives a central bank autonomy and supposedly the ability to resist pressure. But if a central bank does what a government doesn't want it to do, the government will change the law. And I think you've got to bear that in mind. Now, that's also motivated central bankers. And I think that Alan Greenspan's kind of the best example of that. Um, in 1992-ish, he hiked interest rates and George Bush lost re-election. Um, Greenspan and the Fed took a lot of heat for that and uh, didn't really know how to respond. I think Greenspan decided he was going to try to keep away from politically sensitive periods of time, which is maybe a good idea. Then came 1996, and he's warning us all about irrational exuberance, saying the market is uh, kind of overbought. And then by 2000 and, 2000 and 2001, he's telling everybody that those market levels, which are now much higher, are entirely reasonable. So he reversed his position, said that, you know, X is bad, but 2X is good. And why did he do that? Well, because he realized if he wanted to stay on as, uh, as head of the uh, Federal Reserve, he needed to keep the politicians happy. And that meant markets rising. The same thing happened in most of the other uh, major economies that supposedly had independence um, central banks. The central bankers found a way to be rock stars. They could write books that everybody would watch. They had groupies who would follow them around the airports. They basically figured out that you do what the politicians and the voters want, and you will be a rock star. So essentially, they gave up their, they recognized that they didn't really have statutory independence or lasting independence, independence period, and they acted accordingly. They avoided doing what was best for the economy because they could, could, could do better personally if they did what was in their interest. Now we're looking at a situation where 20 to 30 years of central bank policy has, made, has done massive harm to the world. Um, it's not all the central bankers' fault, but you couldn't possibly have had the market appreciation since 2008 that has occurred if the central banks hadn't been pouring money into markets with, with abandon. 
So essentially, now we have this massive distribu- distributional problem with the gap between the poor and the rich being, you know, worse than a lot of third world countries. I'm describing the United States now, but in relative terms, that's true of Europe and other places as well. And you've got um, uh, lower and middle class people furious that their, you know, social contract has been violated and they're not going to be able to give their kids a better life. So it's a disaster. Now. Um, if central banks were really independent and elected authorities could um, solve the problems themselves, then that would be the best way to go forward. But the truth is that in most of the Western countries, because of the wave of populism, you don't have a consensus that allows changes in the fiscal system or better environmental regulation. So, yeah, then the, the central banks are now looking at a situation where they say, you know, bleep, um, We've made a mess of things, and we have to get this fixed, or else our popularity and our influence are going, to, and probably our powers are going to be curtailed sharply. So they have no choice. They're doing this. Um, you know, you look at someone like uh, some of those central bankers actually care about poor people, but I think the one thing that is more general among them is that they care about the independence of their institutions, and they recognize that they're about to take a lot of political pressure for their role in driving a disparity in the distribution of resources, but also financing the destruction of the environment. This, I think, is recognition by the central banks that the uh, elected officials aren't going to save their bacon. They've got to do it themselves. And even if that means jumping to a broader mandate, they have no choice. I see. Yeah, I, I have to agree with you on that. Yeah, I think that's how it's evolved. So, um, Coming now to my last question, I'm going to bring it back home to California. Uh-oh. And I, <laughs> I, know I, I thought you were going to bring it back home to Chicago. No. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you trained as a lawyer. You are a lawyer. And given your location, I can't resist asking you about the future of Silicon Valley. How, to find, how does finance, technology, regulation, all of those things combine to create an environment that continues to be friendly to innovation. You see what's going on in China. Both countries seem to be undertaking new policies. Basically, in China, the IPOs have been scuttled. In the U.S., there's a lot of discussion right now about antitrust, breaking up the companies. How It seems that governments are feeling that they there's too much power that resides with these private organizations and they're going to do something about it. How do you see the future um, of of Silicon Valley and tech companies? (laughs) What's going to happen? (laughs) Uh, Uh (laughs) I've heard that laugh before. Yeah. Well, I I love, I love how you pitch (laughs) these questions at me as if it's a simple question. Um, How do you answer it? (laughs) Of course, okay. it's incredibly impossible to answer, but what, what I'm still going to ask. What is the future of technology with regard particularly to kind of restraints on trade? Right. You asked me what the future is. I see two futures. Okay. I see one future where um, uh, the government steps in and starts to regulate or break up these large institutions because, um, as is evident... We have massive amounts of power in the hands of a bunch of uh, frat boys. Um, you know, some of them like to like water ski over Tahoe and hold an American flag. <laughs> and that's supposed to make us feel that they have our interests at heart. Um, those are the guys who are running. Um, running is not the right word, who have massive control over the political system. They're the ones who decide Mm -hmm. if Russians get to influence the American election, whether lies are allowed to be propagated. They're the ones who profit from driving Mm -hmm. Americans apart from each other. Do I view that as a threat? (laughs) (laughs) It's it's a terrible situation. There's no question that if we were in the 1890s, a time when... Um, the big commercial interests had less power than they do now, these institutions would be broken up as the threats to democracy that they are. But right now they've gained so much power. You know, there's a congr- there's a senatorial investigation and and um, Orrin Hatch, a senator, asks Zuckerberg, how do you make your money? And he looks at him in disbelief and says, Senator, we sell ads. 
The point mm-hmm. being that these old senators and representatives don't, they don't know, they it. don't have a clue about this stuff. They and so the end result, technology. yeah. So how mm-hmm. are they going to regulate it effectively? And how can they resist the power mm-hmm. from these institute, these these enterprises as they spend huge amounts of money on on influencing uh, Congress? So you know. I think there's a real danger here that you have a few unelected oligarchs who determine the outcome of American elections. That's something which causes me a great deal of concern because several of those entrepreneurs are college dropouts who never had an ethics class, didn't study history. They don't know what this Mm -hmm. kind of concentration of power can do to human beings, to people, to citizenries, to countries. That worries me a ton. Um, so I guess the question I would say is, um, can you give me reasons to believe that Congress in the United States and other regulatory slash legislative agencies in other countries are still able to stop this problem from, from completely getting out of hand? Because, frankly, it isn't the people who count the votes that determine the outcome of elections. It's the people who manage the voters, and that's where we are right now. So I think it's a huge threat. Plus, these same these are the same institutions that are developing the technologies that are going to displace labor. So um, essentially, they have an interest in maintaining their power, profiting from the division of people. And they're not really interested in um, helping poor people get jobs. They're coming up with new technologies to reduce the reliance on labor. I think it's a huge problem. And I think the... Uh, 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 trade officials, well, the uh, uh, commerce officials, should be much more aggressive in breaking up these trusts. And I think that the fate of democracies will, in large part, be determined by how successful they are in doing that. Well, thank you, Robert. Thank you for joining me today. Always a I pleasure. really appreciate your insights. Um, thank you for being on the Hale Report. We'll do this again. And appreciation to the people behind the scenes who make EconView possible. Managing Editor Ying Zan and our producer Sam Fu. Please visit our website to sign up for alerts about our next podcast. And we'll be talking again soon, Robert. Of course.